Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. Just a quick listener warning before I begin. This episode contains a few graphic descriptions of murder and mutilations. If you're squeamish or have younger listeners within earshot, you might want to skip this episode and try another. And now, on with the show. If you look at practically any point in history... One theme you'll encounter again and again is that wealth really does have its privileges. Wealthy individuals throughout history have often gotten away with things that would be considered taboo or even criminal among most commoners. History has demonstrated repeatedly that if you're rich enough, the regular rules don't apply the same way they do with other people. Take, for example, the story of James Jameson. He was one of the heirs to the Jameson Irish Whiskey Fortune and he fancied himself something of an adventurer. He was born into a life of privilege where everything he ever wanted was handed to him, and where he never had to work a day in his life. But all that free time his fortune bought him also left Jameson feeling bored. In 1871, he read accounts published in British newspapers about the daring adventures of Henry Morton Stanley. During his most famous expedition into the Congo in search of his fellow lost explorer David Livingstone, Jameson knew from then on, that's what he wanted for himself. So in 1888, when Jameson heard that Stanley was forming a new expedition into the heart of Africa, he jumped at the chance to join his hero on an adventure. Ostensibly, this new expedition was headed to Africa to bring relief supplies to Emin Pasha, the leader of an Ottoman province in Sudan that was embroiled in a civil war. In truth, though, the expedition had a second less altruistic purpose, to annex more land for King Leopold II's Belgian Free State. By June of 1888, Jameson had assumed command of the rear column of the expedition at Ribakiba, a trading post deep in the Congo that had a reputation for being home to a tribe of ferocious cannibals. Back in the late 1800s, European newspapers often ran stories of the so-called savages who lived throughout the Congo, publishing lurid, and highly embellished descriptions of ritual cannibalism and other acts of brutality among the natives. These stories electrified James Jameson's imagination, and he wanted to see for himself if they could possibly be true. So he approached a slave trader named Tipu Tip and asked him if there was any way he could get to see some cannibals in action. A Sudanese translator named Asad Faran would later confirm Jameson's interest in seeing cannibalism firsthand, when he told what happened first to Henry Morton Stanley, and later to the New York Times. According to the translator, Tipu Tip went and spoke to one of the local chiefs 
and asked him to procure a willing subject to be eaten for this white man's amusement. The chief offered up a ten-year-old slave girl to be killed, and the price for her life? Six handkerchiefs given to him by Jameson. After that, we have not only Ferran's version of events, but James Jameson's own diary to tell the story. The young girl was led through the village and tied to a tree. A group of natives brandishing knives surrounded her. One of the men started off by stabbing her twice in the belly. Then the others joined in and began to cut pieces off the girl. One by one, the men took those pieces away and carried them to the river to wash away the blood before cooking and eating them. The last item they took was the girl's severed head. According to James Jameson, the most extraordinary thing of all was that the girl never uttered a sound or even struggled while she was being killed. If that doesn't sound bad enough, throughout the girl's murder, Jameson apparently stood by and drew several rough sketches of what he witnessed. Later, he returned to his tent and finished his sketches in watercolors. In his diary, Jameson admits to making these sketches, although these illustrations have never turned up publicly since then. Jameson died of a fever shortly after returning from Africa, and although some of the rumors that followed him were scandalous among British society, he never had to face any consequences for his actions. Following his death, his widow denied any of these events actually took place. And indeed, some of Jameson's writings from just before he died try to play the whole incident off as a sick joke. He swore in some of his final journal entries that he had no idea a girl was about to be butchered before his eyes. Although this still doesn't explain what he actually expected to see after paying the chief with the six handkerchiefs. Nor does it explain why he would still take the time to stand by and sketch the horrific incident while it was happening. I'm Nate Hale, taking you on a journey into the dark side of Flavortown. And this is The Conspirators. Although we tend to look at cannibalism as the ultimate taboo, one thing to keep in mind is this belief hasn't always been universally held. The animal kingdom is full of examples of creatures that eat their own species to survive. In ancient China, during periods of famine, it was considered the honorable thing to do to offer up your least favorite child to feed others. Although typically you would exchange them for a child from a different family so you wouldn't have to eat your own kid. Human body parts were known to sometimes turn up on the menus of Chinese royalty, under the name the Long Pig. For a long time throughout history, cannibalism was primarily a Western taboo. Europeans were often quick to label tribes throughout Africa and the Americas as cannibals, as an excuse to subjugate and enslave them. When Christopher Columbus sailed to the New World, he was given orders by Queen Isabella to treat any natives he encountered humanely unless they turned out to be cannibals, that is. So, of course, he blamed most of the tribes he encountered of being human-eating savages in order to excuse the pillaging, rape, and enslavement his men did to them. It's actually from Columbus where we get the name Cannibal. One of the tribes he wrote about, he named the Carib, which later became garbled into the word Cannib, and from there, eventually to the term Cannibal. 
This isn't to say that tribal cannibalism hasn't occurred, though. It has and still does even today in parts of Africa and elsewhere around the globe. Although some tribes have given up the practice, though, both because of increased law enforcement in the regions they live, as well as because some tribes have ended up being wiped out by a deadly prion disease called Kuru that you can get from eating human brain tissue. You've probably heard of another deadly prion disease that ravaged cattle populations throughout Europe a few years ago known as mad cow disease. The reasons cannibalism occurs can be broken down into a few different categories. There's survival cannibalism, of course. We've all heard stories of desperate people trapped in isolated areas with no other food sources available aside from other people. During the 18th and 19th centuries, an unwritten code of the sea became well known among sailors that should they become shipwrecked, it was their duty to select a member of their party to dine off of so that the rest of them might survive. Stories like that of the aforementioned tribal cannibalism is sometimes referred to as learned cannibalism. In other words, these are parts of a society's culture that teaches them it's okay to periodically eat other people. In fact, that category can be broken down into its own subcategories. There's endocannibalism, which most often involves eating your deceased relatives or members of your own tribe. And then there's exocannibalism, which is where your tribe goes out and eats members of another tribe, usually to absorb some of their enemy's strength. Beyond that, there's autocannibalism, eating yourself, which, if any of you ever chewed your fingernails, then you're guilty of this particular practice. Then there's symbolic cannibalism. Catholics who have consumed the body of Christ in the form of the Holy Eucharist are familiar with this one. But that still leaves the last major reason for cannibalism. And it's the one that is perhaps the most terrifying of all. Pathological cannibalism. This is practiced by people who turn to cannibalism, not for survival, nor out of any bizarre religious practice. No, these people began eating other people because they actually developed a taste for it. There are a few more fearsome names throughout Scottish history than that of the legendary cannibal outlaw Sawney Bean. In one of the most popular versions of the legend, Alexander Sawney Bean led a small army of inbred cannibals on a killing spree that claimed the lives of more than 1,000 victims. An article from the Newgate Calendar, a catalog of the most notorious criminals from London's Newgate Prison, claimed that Bean was born in East Lothian, Scotland during the 16th century. His father was a ditch digger, although it became apparent early on that Sawney had little desire to follow in his father's footsteps as a laborer, instead choosing to pursue a life of crime. As a young man, Bean met and ran off with a woman named Agnes Douglas, who herself was accused of being a witch. They took to the road for a while, robbing and murdering unsuspecting travelers, and at some point it was claimed that they turned to acts of cannibalism as well. Sonny Bean and Agnes Douglas would eventually settle down and create a home for themselves in Benin Caves in Ayrshire. The cave system was a twisting labyrinth of miles of underground tunnels, the perfect place to hide out from the law and start a family. And what a family it was. Agnes Douglas had 14 children of her own, raised below ground like feral animals. They were taught only hate and how to prey on others. These children in turn grew up and interbred with one another, all along carrying on the family business of robbery, murder, and cannibalism. 
In total, it's said the entire Bean clan consisted of 46 sons, daughters, grandsons, and granddaughters, all born of incest. They stalked the lonely roads around Ayrshire, dragging their victims back to the caves under cover of darkness to be devoured. Occasionally, some skeletal remains might wash up along shore. But for years, no one ever thought to search Benin Caves for the monsters responsible. But eventually the clan slipped up and allowed a living witness to go free. This individual told the local authorities of what lie beneath their feet. In differing versions of events, King James then either sent out a small army of 400 men to enter the caves and arrest as many of the Bean clan as they could take alive, or in some versions of the story, the king ordered that the cave be sealed with explosives, leaving the cannibalistic wretches to starve to death below ground. There is one major problem with the story of Sonny Bean, though. There's a very good chance that little, if any of it, is actually true. One major red flag you'll find right away while researching the tale is how much the timeline shifts between narratives. Although Bean is commonly said to have lived during the 16th century, you can also find versions claiming this all occurred as early as the 13th century, or even as late as the 18th. Today, most historians believe the entire story of Sonny Bean might have been made up as a way of portraying the Scots as violent savages following the Jacobite rebellions that occurred throughout the late 17th and early 18th centuries, thereby justifying England's heavy-handed tactics in quashing any rebellion against the crown. In fact, some historians have even strongly suggested many of the details of the Sonny Bean legend might have been lifted wholesale from the story of yet another 16th century Scottish cannibal outlaw, known as Christy Cleek, who himself might have been a work of fiction. Made up or not, one interesting side note is that in the 1970s, a young filmmaker named Wes Craven heard about the legend of Sawney Bean and decided to shoot a movie that utilized the bones of the Sawney Bean legend. Craven updated the story to the modern era and moved the location to an irradiated nuclear test site in the Nevada desert, calling the film The Hills Have Eyes. But although Sonny Bean might have been made up to scare people into submission, there are some stories of cannibalistic mountain men that have turned out to be very, very real. In 1824, a man named John Jeremiah Garrison Johnston was born in Little York, New Jersey. After a short stint fighting in the Mexican-American War, then briefly serving in the U.S. Navy, he moved out west, and it's there that he earned his much more well-known and descriptive nickname, liver-eating Johnson. While living in the Alder Gulch territory of Montana, Johnson met a woman who was a member of the Flathead Indian tribe and made her his wife. In 1847, he built a log cabin for the two of them to live in, and Johnson's bride became pregnant. One day, Johnson returned home from a long journey only to discover that a group of Crow Indian men had attacked his home, murdered his wife and unborn child, and burned the log cabin to the ground. Blinded by rage, Johnson vowed to get his revenge by tracking each of the Crow Indians who killed his wife down and making them pay for what they had done. Good to his word, Johnson hunted down every one of them. After they were dead, he cut out each man's liver and ate it. This was because the crow had a belief that the liver was a vital organ that allowed their spirits to enter the afterlife. By cooking and eating them, liver-eating Johnson ensured their spirits would never rest. But even after Johnson fulfilled his original mission and killed the men who murdered his wife, 
kept right on going, scalping and eating the livers of many more members of the Crow Nation. It's believed that Johnson may have killed as many as 300 Crow over the more than two decades following his wife's death. Legend has it that a group of Blackfoot Indians managed to capture liver-eating Johnson and made plans to sell him to the Crow. But Johnson managed to escape his captors and even cut off one of their legs, taking it with him into the woods to snack on later. Johnson carried on his killing spree for 25 years before something changed in his life that caused him to give up his vendetta against the Crow. Although we don't know exactly what it was that caused liver-eating Johnson to change his ways, Many historians believe it may have had something to do with Johnson's realization that the U.S. Army was becoming an even graver threat to the Indians' future. Johnson went on to serve with the 2nd Colorado Cavalry of the Union Army in St. Louis. He received an honorable discharge and afterwards moved back to Montana where he served for a time as the town marshal of the town of Red Lodge. He died on January 21, 1900 in Santa Monica, California at age 75. In 1972... Robert Redford starred in a film version of his life titled Jeremiah Johnson. But liver-eating Johnson isn't the only cannibal to come out of the Old West. There once lived a Kentucky man named Levi Boone Helm, who became notorious for eating victims all across the Old West. But unlike Johnson, Boone Helm didn't become a cannibal out of revenge. He did it because he liked it. In fact, although it's a title that's certainly up for debate, some history books describe Boone Helm as America's first serial killer. He was born in 1828 to what was considered a respectable rural Kentucky family. Throughout his youth, Helm had a number of minor run-ins with the law. He was good with his fists, and he liked to goad men into fights. He also had a particular skill he developed where he could throw his bowie knife into the ground and retrieve it while riding a horse at full gallop. In 1848, he married Lucinda Browning, but Helm proved to be such a violent domestic abuser that his wife soon petitioned the court for a divorce. The resulting court costs bankrupted Lucinda's father and ruined her reputation. In 1850, Helm headed out west, hoping to make his fortune in the California gold rush. At one point, he stabbed a traveling companion named Littleberry to death during an altercation. This would eventually lead Helm to be temporarily sent to a mental asylum. But he escaped the asylum and continued heading west, robbing and murdering his way across the trails. At one point he joined up with a gang of six outlaws confiding to them that he had killed several men, and decided that he liked the taste of eating their flesh whenever he got hungry enough. For some reason that I'll never understand, the gang kept traveling with Helm even after he made his little revelation. One day the gang was attacked by Indians on their way to Fort Hall, Idaho. The natives drove the men into the wilderness where they were short on supplies and were eventually forced to kill and eat their horses to survive. But the journey ahead proved too arduous for the men and eventually their numbers dwindled to just Helm and a fellow named Burton. When Burton collapsed, claiming he didn't have the strength to go on any further, Helm claimed he gave the man a pistol and allowed him to do the honorable thing and shoot himself. Helm then cut off one of the man's legs and took it with him to dine on as he carried it on his journey. We'll never know for certain how many men Helm murdered throughout his life. Some reports put the number as low as 11, although he sometimes bragged about a body count many times higher than that. One of the confirmed murders we know Helm committed was a rancher who took him in while he was traveling through California. 
After that, Helm continued traveling throughout the northwestern United States, robbing and murdering his way up to Oregon. He was briefly captured after gunning down an unarmed man named Dutch Fred in an Oregon saloon. While on the run, he murdered a traveling companion and ate parts of him as well. Although police briefly arrested him, Helm managed to pay off all the witnesses to his crimes, and they were forced to let him go free. He continued killing and eating his way across the West until he joined up with the notorious Henry Plummer gang in 1846. A group of vigilantes from Virginia City, Montana eventually tracked down Plummer's gang. They hung Boonhelm and the other gang members before a cheering crowd of 6,000 spectators. It's difficult to say exactly why some people turn to cannibalism when they don't have to. In the case of Boonhelm, it's believed there were plenty of instances where he dined on human flesh when hunger wasn't a problem, and he had plenty of other culinary options. But Helm claimed to like the taste of human meat as much as any animal. Psychologists say that serial murderers who turn to cannibalism like Albert Fish or Jeffrey Dahmer are doing it as a way of taking a permanent trophy of their crimes. They also point to there being a sort of addiction that rises in some cannibal killers from the high they get when their brains get a jolt of the feel-good neurochemical dopamine while they're eating people. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I'm not going to get into the lives of Albert Fish or Jeffrey Dahmer here because both of their stories are well worth episodes of their own. But I do have a few other tales I'd like to share with you. Let's turn our attention to another incident that occurred in one of the most unlikely of locations. A quaint little shop in picturesque Correggio, Italy. During the 1930s, that shop was run by a woman named Leonardo Cianciulli. And she'd had a difficult life. She'd come from a large family and she'd had a fairly miserable childhood. She attempted suicide twice as a girl before she met and married an office clerk named Raphael Pansardi in 1917. Her parents did not approve of the marriage since her mother had already arranged for her to marry another man. Leonardo was a superstitious woman, and she believed her mother cursed her for going against her wishes. She once visited a fortune teller who told her she would have many children, but they would all die young. In 1927, Leonardo had a short brush with the law when she was imprisoned for fraud. After she was released three years later, the couple's home in Lacedonia was destroyed in an earthquake. Throughout her marriage to Raphael, Leonardo became further convinced she had been cursed, as the fortune teller's prediction appeared to come true. Cianciulli became pregnant 17 times, but she lost three of them to miscarriages. Ten more of her children died of disease and accidents during their youth. This made Leonardo extremely protective of her remaining children. 
After the earthquake destroyed their home, Leonardo and her husband tried to make a fresh start for themselves in Correggio, where she opened a small shop where she sold handmade gifts and baked goods. Leonardo became quite popular in the community. She gained a reputation as a good listener, and often local women would come to her seeking advice. Leonardo's favorite child was her eldest son, Giuseppe. He was young and handsome, and many of the ladies who came into Leonardo's shop clearly had their eye on him, much to Leonardo's chagrin. In 1939, Leonardo learned that Giuseppe planned on joining the Italian army to fight in World War II. Leonardo became terrified that the fortune teller's prediction would take her beloved son. Then one day, a police detective came around Leonardo's shop looking for Giuseppe. They wanted to ask him what he knew about the disappearance of an opera singer named Virginia Cacciopo. The woman's sister-in-law had gone to police with her fear that something terrible had happened to her. She was last seen entering Leonardo's shop, and the police soon made it apparent that they planned on arresting Giuseppe for her murder. But Leonardo changed everything when she made a startling confession. She told the inspectors that Giuseppe had nothing to do with Virginia's disappearance and that it was she who was guilty of not only the murder of Virginia Cacciopo, but two other local women as well, Francesco Sovi and Faustina Setti. Leonardo told them that Setti had been her first victim. Setti was a lifelong spinster who had come to her asking for advice in finding a husband. She told Setti that she knew of a likely suitor who lived in a neighboring town asking only that Seti keep this a secret just between the two of them. She persuaded Seti to write letters and postcards to relatives, telling them she was moving away to be with her new beau. Then, when Leonardo was satisfied everything was in place, she drugged the woman with a glass of tainted wine, then cut her body into nine pieces with an axe. And what had she done with the pieces? The skeptical officers asked. Simple, she replied. She tossed the body parts into a cooking pot and added several kilos of caustic soda. Then she dissolved the woman's flesh down into a thick mush, most of which she dumped into her septic tank. She did save some of the woman's remains, though. She dried the woman's blood out and used it as an ingredient in her tasty little tea cakes that she had been serving to guests. Leonardo had even eaten a few herself. Leonardo repeated this process with her second victim, Francesco Sovi. In this case, she persuaded the woman that she could help her find a job at a school for girls in another town. Like Seti, Leonardo persuaded the woman to write postcards and letters informing her loved ones that she was moving far away. Then, when the time was right, Leonardo drugged the woman, chopped up her body with an axe, and used the remains to make more of her chocolate tea cakes... Leonardo profited from the murders, stealing Faustina Setti's and Francesco Sovi's life savings after their murders. Although she did rob Virginia Cacciopo of more than 50,000 lira and assorted jewels, Leonardo Cianciulli told police her primary motive for the opera singer's murder was as a human sacrifice in a ritual meant to protect her son. Like the other two women, she persuaded Cacciopo that she knew of a secretarial job that was just perfect for her in another town. Unlike the other two women, Leonardo used the woman's melted body fat to make some of her handmade soaps, as well as some more tea cakes. At first, police refused to believe this tiny woman could possibly have done everything she described. But then, as a demonstration, they put Leonardo in a room with an axe and a cadaver obtained from the morgue. Leonardo took the body apart so expertly, the police had no choice but to believe her. 
She was tried for murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in an insane asylum. She died in the asylum in October 1970. A number of artifacts from the case, including her infamous cooking pot where she boiled her victims, are on display in a criminology museum in Rome. One thing that may surprise you about cannibalism is that in the United States and in most European countries, the act of consuming human flesh isn't against the law. Most people who commit cannibalism are charged with other crimes, including murder and desecration of a corpse. It's this lack of a legal definition involving acts of cannibalism that have complicated cases of cannibal murders. In March 2001, a German computer repair technician named Armin Mavis earned international notoriety for posting a notice on an internet message board looking for a willing victim who would allow themselves to be eaten. Most shockingly of all, more than one person answered the ad. After several people answered the ad and backed out, Mavis finally found one taker in the form of an engineer from Berlin named Bernd Jürgen Armando Brandes. The two men arranged to meet in Mavis's home where Brandis recorded a video explaining he was participating voluntarily. They then recorded Brandis swallowing a handful of sleeping pills and washing them down with a bottle of cough syrup before Mavis proceeded to amputate the man's penis on camera. At first, Mavis tried to consume the appendage raw before he changed tactics and tried cooking it in a pan with some wine, garlic, and a bit of Brandis's body fat. But Mavis left the hunk of flesh on the stove too long and burned it, so he fed it to his dog. Brandis remained alive but drugged and suffering from heavy blood loss for several more hours. They documented much of what happened until finally Mavis decided to finish the man off by stabbing him in the throat. Afterwards, Mavis hung the body on a meat hook and dismembered the corpse. He then froze the rest of the meat and continued to dine off the man's flesh for the next ten months. It's believed he consumed about 45 pounds of Brandis's flesh. Mavis was finally arrested in December 2002 after a college student alerted police to a new online advertisement the man had posted looking for a new victim. Police searched the man's home and found several leftover body parts as well as the videotape of Brandis being killed. On January 30th, 2004, Mavis was convicted of manslaughter. But at first, he was sentenced to only eight years in prison. In April 2005, when it became apparent the man might walk free in just a few years, a German court ordered a retrial after prosecutors appealed the light sentence. In the second trial, Mavis was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. In the case of Armin Mavis, prosecutors managed to narrowly avoid releasing a potentially dangerous individual back on the streets. But in Japan, there's a man who not only confessed to cannibalizing a woman, but got away with it practically scot-free, and even became a celebrity for it. It's a story that brings things full circle to once again demonstrate how wealth and privilege can help some people get away with practically anything, even murder. Issei Sagawa was born in Kobe, Hyogo Prefecture, in 1949 to wealthy parents. He was born prematurely and developed enteritis, a disease of the small intestine that affected his development. He always considered himself weak, ugly, and small. He is only 4 feet 9 inches tall and his short stature was just part of what made him feel like a perpetual outsider. He claimed there was always something different inside him, a darkness that left him with cravings unlike those of other people. In a 2011 interview with Vice, Sagawa claimed he committed bestiality with the family dog and held cannibalistic desires for women as early as first grade. 
At age 23, he followed a German woman home to her apartment in Tokyo where he broke in while she was sleeping and attacked her. He claimed that he intended to cannibalize her, but the woman awoke suddenly and overpowered him, wrestling him to the floor before calling the police. Sagawa was arrested and charged with attempted rape, but the charges didn't stick, and soon he was free once again. In 1977, Sagawa moved to France to pursue a PhD in literature at the Sorbonne in Paris. He began bringing prostitutes home practically every night, but this time he needed to be smarter so that he didn't have a repeat of the incident in Japan. While they had their backs turned, Sagawa would pull out a gun and pretend to shoot them from behind. He repeated this ritual practically every night for four years until he finally worked up the courage to follow through with it. At the Sorbonne, he met a Dutch student named René Hartevelt and struck up a friendship with her. He slowly gained the woman's trust and began inviting her to his home for dinner. One night, he attempted his trick of standing behind her with a gun, only this time he actually pulled the trigger. But the gun misfired, and that night he lost his nerve. He invited her back the following night and tried again. This time, the gun went off, killing her instantly. This was the moment he'd been waiting his whole life for. Immediately after murdering Hardevelt, Issei Sagawa raped the woman's corpse and took a knife and began cutting her open. Sagawa has given numerous interviews since then describing the feelings of power and complete euphoria he experienced as he began to shove pieces of the woman's body into his mouth. Two days later, Sagawa loaded the woman's remains into two suitcases and hailed a cab. He intended to drop the suitcases into a secluded lake, but several people noticed the blood trail he was leaving behind and called the police. After that, Issei Sagawa spent two years awaiting trial in a French prison, but his family hired a high-powered attorney who managed to successfully argue to a judge that Sagawa was legally insane and therefore unfit to stand trial. The charges against Sagawa were then dropped, and he was instead ordered to be sent to a mental institution. The French courts decided Sagawa was Japan's problem. They shipped the man back to his home country with the intention that he would remain in a Japanese mental institution for the rest of his life. Except that's not what happened. You see, because the charges in France were dropped, the court documents were then sealed and could not be released to Japanese authorities. This meant that under Japanese law, there was no cause to hold Issei Sagawa in an institution, and he instead got to walk free. Sagawa checked himself out of the mental institution in 1986, and he has remained a free man ever since. What's even worse is that following his release, Sagawa has become a minor celebrity. He went on the lecture circuit and has given numerous interviews describing every detail of his horrific crimes, even going so far as to describe to reporters the taste of human flesh. If you must know, he has claimed at different times that it reminded him of the taste of the Japanese dish Shabu Shabu. Other notorious cannibals throughout history have said it tasted more like pork or veal. There have been numerous TV shows and movies made about Issei Sagawa, and even a series of manga comics. In 1983, the Rolling Stones wrote a song about the hype surrounding the murderer titled Too Much Blood. In 2005, Sagawa's parents died, but he was prevented from attending their funeral. He has devoted most of his life over the last few decades to his writing. Occasionally, Sagawa writes restaurant reviews for the Japanese magazine Spa. 
His 20th book, Extremely Intimate Fantasies of Beautiful Girls, was published recently. It's a picture book, with illustrations done by himself, as well as a number of famous artists. In the years he has spent as a free man since he murdered and ate Renate Hardevelt, Issei Sagawa has only expressed one regret, that he couldn't have eaten the girl's flesh while she was still alive. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new Patreon supporter to thank this week. Thanks to Brad for helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. Another thing I encourage you to do to help support the show is subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your five-star reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical algorithms and spreads the good word about the show to more listeners. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also available on many of your other favorite podcast apps. We even have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to all our episodes anytime. Besides all that, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you want to drop us a line, hit us up at any of those places or shoot us an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you'll be back next time. <laughs>